Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. Happy Easter weekend. Well, if you're listening to this, it will be actual Easter. If you're listening to it on the day, it's not Easter today. And I'm recording it, sadly. But anyway, um, yes, so this week I am bringing us back to kind of closer to modern day times. Obviously, I've been way back when Samantha did hers. So I'm taking us to the 80s. And this week I'm going to tell you about the murder of the Doyle family. Samantha, have you heard of this case at all? No, it doesn't ring any bells. No shock there. It might, but nothing so far. Okay, okay. I did know of this one, but there's a reason why is it's associated with something a lot bigger. And like when I've said to people, this is the case I've been doing this week, etc., they've all been like, oh, is that? And they've linked it to something. So this case is actually a murder that took place during the Glasgow Ice Cream Wars, which oh. I think a few people are probably thinking like, oh, okay, I've heard of them. Some people have probably got no idea. So I'm going to kind of spend a lot of time talking about the Ice Cream Wars in Glasgow. Um, but I want to focus on this family's murder in particular because it has so much around it. And I think it's kind of the most like shock factor one for me. Of course, Ice Cream Wars had loads of, horrific things happen I could probably do a side like episode on the ice cream wars themselves but I'm gonna tell you mainly about the Doyle family today so as I said it's 1980s in Glasgow and it's set in the east end so the population of Glasgow I'm actually gonna ask you to guess and if you're listening to this but Samantha guess the population of Glasgow in the 1980s what would you have said like 500,000 right so that's what I was thinking right and anyone at home you can have a guess now when I've googled it it has come up with 1.7 million oh which is huge that's and like I was over like, a sixth of the population of Scotland well that's what I thought <laughs> but then I suppose the rest of Scotland is smaller areas like Glasgow is probably one of the biggest cities yeah. and I was quite shocked about this, but then as I go into this story, you'll probably actually believe that figure because Glasgow had a huge housing population and they were in tenements, which I think a lot of people know what a tenement is, but it's a huge block of flats, which were like 20 odd blocks of flats. Now, these flats were so overcrowded. You're talking whole families of grandparents, parents, children living in these flats and some of them could have two bedrooms and you would have like eight people living in these flats so the population of Glasgow was huge and the east end of Glasgow was not like the west and south end which were quite up and coming the east end was quite known for crime and was quite a poverty stricken area and kind of a lot of stuff went on there so in the 1980s the kind of city of Glasgow come up with ideas for schemes and they build schemes which Basically, if like if I hear the word scheme, like I grew up with the word like schemey and like schemes being quite bad. But basically the schemes were built and they were kind of like out of the city, just little areas which had more space, bigger flats, and they were kind of like scheme areas. Um so the planners obviously built these schemes, but they forgot to add shops. So like 
these areas had no shops, no little corner shops, no grocery shops. So for the poorer people in this area that are now living in the scheme, if they want to do their shopping, they're going to have to either take a bus or a train into the city centre or into local places for shops. So you can imagine like what a nightmare that is. Like if you have to travel all the way and you forget something, you know, it's not that easy. And especially if you're working or you don't have a lot of money, it's probably about one weekly food shop you're doing or one big shop. So if you then get back or you run out of toilet roll in the middle of the week, you can't just nip down the road to your local Tesco kind of thing. You're having to go all this trip. So there's obviously a gap in the market here. And this is where the ice cream van businesses begin. Now, I will admit I was very naive to the ice cream wars way back when I first heard about it. And I thought this was generally about like ice creams and ice cream vans. But they did sell ice cream, don't get me wrong. But they would also sell toiletries, household items, groceries, etc. Which I actually think is a really, really clever idea. Like, what a gap in the market for like this kind of profession like you know like they didn't have shops so these vans would operate different times throughout the day some of them would operate like later at night like five till eleven so if you have that as I just said you've run out of toilet roll you've run out of something there's an ice cream van kind of in every scheme so they can get it now of course if it's the ice cream van wars it's not about ice cream and toiletries some of them sold drugs alcohol basically I read that anything you kind of thought of you could probably get from a van now, they actually made a fair bit of money and some van owners were known to make like two, three hundred pound profit a week, which back then that is a lot, a lot of money. Even now, like that is a good amount of money. Like, that's quite a stable amount of money. But as I said earlier, every ice cream van has its own patch. So you can't go and buy an ice cream van and decide you want to like pitch up somewhere. That is somebody's patch. So, of course, this does happen. And conflicts begin so like vans would be seen like following each other and they would stop next to each other and start competing for business so like that van could be selling something for a pound you're selling it for like ATP kind of thing all quite silly but at the end of the day everyone had to make their money somehow and I don't think it was just like men on their own with a van I think these were behind like bigger businesses etc but obviously it wasn't just that people would smash them up they would vandalize the vans um which actually did sometimes work, of course, because you could either be scared off or your van could be out of action. You know, if they're going to slash your tires, that's going to have to go and get fixed. So your van's out of action. And that means that you're not in that area for that time. Now, the people that attack in the vans were actually called frighteners. And they're the people that would go and seize it in the towel, really. Gives them a fright. And would try and scare off the competition. Now, that has been kind of just summed up ice cream wars obviously there's so much more in that that I could talk about but that's just a kind of basic start to where this story begins so the first member of the Doyle family I'm going to really talk about is Andrew Doyle who was 18 at the time and he had a nickname fat boy and this isn't I think this is because he had a huge frame but like in parts I've read about <laughs> <laughs> like people talking about him the stuff the police would refer to him as fat boy it wasn't like isn't that was his name um and oh. he could <laughs> I know, too relatable for us, Sam, too relatable. Um, <laughs> he grew up in a housing scheme. And as I said, he got the name from his massive big frame. But I don't think he was a big kind of violent guy at all. I think he was actually kind of a big soft guy, which was nice. He had lots of strength as well, I think. And his parents were Lillian and James Doyle. Now, they all lived at 28 Bank End Street and he lived with his whole family in the top floor flat. Um, they all made good living so like it wasn't like 
they were all into anything bad at all. They were all honest hard workers. And Andrew Doyle began working for the Marchetti brothers, I think it is. Um, if I've pronounced that wrong, I'm really sorry. And he was recruited by them to drive a spare van as a blocker. So a blocker is to like block turfs and get rid of combini- um, competition. Sorry. So he would drive this spare van around the area. And of course, he heard of the risks, but he knew that if he managed to secure certain turfs, he's hearing of these people. So can you imagine you're told like to do this and you're like, oh God, like I could get attacked by frighteners, et cetera. But then you're hearing stories of people that are making two to 300 pound profit. Like it's probably worth taking the harder parts for how good it's going to be. Um, so in February, 1984, Andrew was working with his 17 year old servant assistant, a girl called Anne Wilson. Now I read about this as well. So some school girls would work as like servant assistants or like people would get their sisters, etc., to do it. So it must be because they obviously had the stock in the back, etc. But I heard this, that that was quite a common thing to do. And they were covering in Balvenie Street and they were working from 5.30 to 11pm. So they were doing that kind of night shift pattern that I told you about. At 8pm, the van was parked up and Anne was sitting in the front and I think Andrew was in the back just sorting things out and a maroon Volvo approaches the car. So like, obviously they think it's just a customer, they think someone's parking, no issues at all. However, a man gets out wearing a balaclava and a shotgun and shoots the front window of the ice cream van twice and it breaks through the glass, like a huge hole in the glass. So Anne obviously drops down and scrambles into the back and Andrew tries to get out via this like small hatch they have in the back. But by the time they get out, the police car had already drove away. Now the police are called, so Andrew had asked someone to call the police, but they basically found little to like corroborate who did this. They found not really anyone that would speak up and say they kind of saw much, you know. Now, word on the street was that... Thomas Campbell and Tam McGraw and Joe Steele were three guys who kind of wanted this route and that any Marchetti driver better be kind of careful. So, as I'd said, like, they, he was a blocker and I think, like, he was refusing to budge from his route. So this is kind of his first threat from a frightener. Now, I mentioned some names there that you probably haven't heard yet, so I'm going to talk to you about them. So the first one is Thomas Campbell, which I'm going to call TC. That's who he was, That's what he was called, basically. So I'm just going to call him TC because you'll hear me talk about him quite a lot in today's episode. So he was born in the 1950s and he grew up in quite a rough area of Glasgow and was known even from being quite young for like carrying a knife, etc. Um, he was the youngest of 10 children. And his dad was quite a tough guy as well and would make that big thing of like, I'm a tough guy, you're a tough guy kind of thing. Um, When I say this early carries a knife, he would also get into a lot of like fist fights. And he was actually described of having like his face was chained because he'd been in so many fights and like hit so many times. You could actually see it in his face. Like I'm kind of envisioning like a rugby player kind of style face, if you get what I mean. Now, when he was quite young, his mum died. And when his mum had died, he was his dad was actually in prison. So his sister became his guardian. But... I was also reading when he got into fights, like he would use hammers and like really like quite gruesome weapons. Like he wasn't going just to fight. He was going to like cause harm to people. He had a long term girlfriend, though, which I find quite interesting. So he was with a girl called Liz and they were together for quite a long time. Now, he was actually in prison. I can't really get what for. I think I might have written it down earlier, but I don't know if it was armed robbery or something so please don't quote me on that but he was in prison and he got out in 1983 and that's when TC decided to try out this like ice cream van business and he was making like a good amount of profit as well 
um, and he was working down areas through like Hag Hill and I don't know how to pronounce this one. R U C H A Z I E. How would you pronounce that? Rukazi? Ruxi. I don't have a clue. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So, he also got a nickname, the Emperor of Carantine. So, that's what he was kind of up to. So, he also made a very good friend who he had a kind of love hate relationship with, and that's Tam McGraw, that I mentioned earlier. Um, and this they helped when McGraw actually recruited TC into his gang for helping him rob post offices and he stole thousands and you know he was kind of known to be one of the most feared like underworld criminals of Glasgow and he actually was one that spoke to Andrew Doyle and tried to persuade 18 year old Doyle to like sell drugs for him but he actually refused he didn't want his van being associated with that so he was still as i'd said earlier his family were just making an innocent living and he didn't want his van being associated with any kind of crime like this the last person i mentioned is joe Steele. so he was in he was born in the 60s sorry to parents andy and margaret and he lived with quite a large family as well now the Steeles were quite well known throughout kind of Glasgow way and his dad and brothers had actually been to prison and people would make jokes being like oh you're also going to go up your head like your dad and your brother um and like which I'm like oh, that's not kind of joke that I grew up with but he was in the youth <laughs> justice system since he turned 14 and one night he broke out of his like kind of youth boarding school kind of thing um he was still soft chased by police etc and he held head in a building when he was basically found and asked to return to school or he'd end up going to prison. And he actually went to prison and he was one of the youngest boys in Scotland to go to prison and he was 15. Now, he also had a long-term partner called Dolly, who they had been with since they were 14, and they stuck by them. But the kind of bits I read about his family, I'm like his dad had worked with like the Cray twins and in 1983, he met Thomas Campbell and also joined the McGraw crew. Now, I don't Could actually have... Them? Yeah, yeah, very good. But that's all the information I have on the men. I don't actually have much about the Doyle family. It's quite hard, I found this episode, trying to get information about them. I could be totally wrong. Maybe I'm missing it somewhere. But there's a lot about the ice cream wars. There's a lot about the kind of crime bits. But actually finding out anything, even like dates of birth of these men, I found really, really difficult. So I'm really sorry, but that's kind of the only information I have on them. Now, after all the threats and after especially his ice cream van getting shot in, Andrew Doyle kept going and kept selling in that area. Um, and on the 5th of April, Andrew Doyle was leaving his tenement flat and was actually assaulted by like hooded and masked men. He was actually beat up really badly, but he still kept going. Like This was his turf. He wasn't getting involved in all this bad business. Like He was able to make a good, honest living. He didn't need to sell drugs from his van and he didn't want to get recruited into a gang. He was quite happy. So I would have been scared. I would have left that a long time ago. I would have been like, I've been shot at, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have been good at it at all. And to be honest, like I think it is quite a scary thing, like being into that, like it is trying to make a living. And if someone's not happy with the way you're doing it, they are going to shoot at you. It's not like a disagreement and it's horrendous. Some of the things I read, honestly, I can, I'll happily do. If more people want to hear about it, I'll happily do a week in a side episode more about it. But if not, just going to google and read some of the stories about the ice cream van wars it is madness the kind of things that happened but anyway so on april 15th 1984 the doyle family were in their house so their top floor flat now this consists of lillian and james their children james jr andrew stephen and anthony their daughter christina who didn't normally live with them she was sleeping over 
and her baby, Mark, who was 18 months old. So that is a lot of people in the one flat, as I was talking about earlier. Now, at 2am on April the 16th, the family are asleep, but wake up to find their flat full of smoke. Now, a group of men had poured petrol onto the front door, the landing, and the like little room at the side of flats, you know, the kind of storage cupboard, which was actually full with like tyres, paint, etc. And as they walked partway down the stairs, they threw a match up. So, of course, the flames completely engulfed the flat. Now, this was said to be a frightener. However, the amount of petrol that was used, it was either the wrong dosage and they didn't actually realise how much they were doing, or this was definitely not a frightener. This was not just to scare them because this went completely out of control. Like you're looking at rubber tyres burning, etc. So they made loads of attempts to try and escape and they were heard screaming, they were heard banging on walls, shouting for help. And neighbours have quoted that that lasted a lot longer than most people thought it would. So, of course, they're in a top floor flat 40 feet up and their front door is trapped. And any time they open their balcony door, of course, that would make flames worse. So all the neighbours had managed to clear out and the fire brigade did arrive with ambulances, police, etc. But they're having to put out the blaze as it's taken over the rest of the flat to actually get up to them. Now, the family had kind of split into two parts. So the main part of the family were in a room and they basically had opened a window tinily and like were taking turns to breathe out of the small window. Um, and when I was actually researching it, like I, I do get emotional when doing some of these cases, but this is the one that I really struggled with. Like right up until the very end, they stuck so well as a family because they actually took turns in breathing out the window to try and keep each other all alive. So it wasn't like, they were just putting it up to the mum or anything. They actually all took turns, which I was just like, that is so heartbreaking to read that. Justine and Mark, unfortunately, were not able to make it to that room with the oxygen. And when the fire brigade and the paramedics, etc., got in, she was actually found cradling baby Mark. Now, Mark was found barely breathing, but he actually died in the sick kids' hospital. The rest of the family, so Stephen, had jumped off the 40-foot balcony and he actually survived with minor injuries, which I couldn't believe. Now, Lillian had been cut off from the rest of the family as well, but she was found perched at another external window. So she'd kind of had a window to herself, which meant she also survived. But the rest of the family were brought out, like, as you can imagine. They've been in that flat that's burning for so long. So they're covered in smoke. They're taken away in ambulances. You know, they're all kind of burnt. And as Andrew Doyle was being led to the waiting ambulance, he shouted to the police, you know who did this? So the next, within the next couple of days, James Senior, James Junior, Andrew and Anthony all passed away. So six people in the family were murdered. The only surviving members were Lillian, who was the mum, and the brother Stephen, who jumped off the balcony. Now, as you can imagine, yes, there was these ice cream wars that were going on. People were getting shot at, etc. But this completely shook the community because, yes, one of them was an ice cream van driver. One of them. The rest weren't anything to do with this. That's family. That's an 18-month-old baby that's been killed in a horrendous way. They had a funeral in the local church, which, as you can imagine, was a huge crowd. From what I can gather, it was just like a family funeral, obviously. Like, just one kind of big thing. But that's a mum burying all of her children bar one and her husband and her grandchild, which is absolutely horrendous. And I think... Of course, the police were wanting to get this solved. And I think that's why a lot of it I'll talk about. There was a lot of pressure, I feel, on the police from the public, which is why they made some decisions so quickly. 
Now, when they started obviously speaking to the public and trying to find out things, a cashier in a local garage was asked to sell a group of men a canister of petrol, and she actually refused this. However, a male manager came over and allowed service, despite her saying no, and men were seen in the local area carrying these. Now, at 2am, a man also saw a vehicle driving away fast from Bankend Street, and it crashed, and the people fled the vehicle, which was three young men and an older man. Older man, sorry. The police attended, and the vehicle smelled like petrol and had an empty petrol canister. But police did not relate this to the fire, as and didn't care about the descriptions of the men, as this was an unrelated incident to the fire along the road, basically, how, from this time. How is it unrelated? Yeah. I this is the first bit that I was just like, oh, this is gonna be one of those cases that is just gonna be a little bit tricky. So the police basically already had it in their head that they believed this was TC, Steele, and McGraw. And they all like that's who they believe was involved in this. I don't know if that's more uh, that's what they truly believed, or it would have been easier for it to be. Like I will just say that's obviously my own opinion. I'm not saying what happened, that's just my thoughts. But of course, they all denied this. So about, I'm not actually sure how many miles away I was going to say, but it's in Barlini Prism. Now, I actually wasn't 100% sure where Barlini was. Um, so it's in the residential suburb of Ridry, which is in the northeast of Glasgow. And Barlini is actually the largest prison in Scotland. Um, and it is also known locally as the Big Hoose in Barrel, which I really like Barrel. But <laughs> to say, I was like, that's a good name. But anyway, away in Barlini Prison, 50 ISIS member William Love basically says he has some information that might be of interest to the police about the fire at the Doyles. So, of course, the police go in and Love actually confirms that he drove the Volvo that shot through the ice cream van. Do you remember when I said it's like it shot and the girl Anne was working, etc.? So he admits he was the one driving the Volvo, but said it was TC that shot the gun. He then said he was at the Netherfield pub in March where he heard a group of men, and like TC was one of these men, um, along with Steele and some other boys, discussing giving Doyle another frightener by setting fire to his front door. Now, he gave this statement and promised to help further, like anything you need, as long as his current charges were taken away. So, of course, he's then let out on bail. So I was just kind of like, hmm, because it was quite interesting, as of course there was objections of him getting out on bail when he was first tried, but now this seems to have all gone away and the deal was made that he could get out on bail. So he gives this information up and he gets out. Now there's also another man, Joseph Granger, who was another ex kind of associate of TC, said that he was in a pub and heard a group of men talking about setting fire to the door to like warn off fat boy from his route, etc. So he then said he went with TC, Steel, etc. to the door and he was told to be the edgy, which I was like, pardon me? So the edgy is apparently Glaswegian. Do you know what that is slang for? Do you know? You've got Glasgow Not route. a clue. Right, good. Yes. Um, it's to be a lookout. So like, oh, you be edgy. And it's like keeping a lookout for something. So he was asked to be lookout as they doused the door in petrol. And he admits all this. But because of this statement against TC and Steel, they allow him to walk free. So he won't have any charges on him, but he has just admitted admitted he was there watching them down. He was petrol, edgy, et edgy. He was edgy. What a joke. He was edgy, exactly. So <laughs> he was there 
doing it all, but because he's gave the statement to the police, he will walk free, he will not have any charges, he won't be involved. Wow. So I am just like, hmm. So he actually names the men as TC, Thomas Gray and Joe Steele. Now, of course, the police go and arrest them. So TC was in bed with his wife, Liz. Well, I think, I don't know if they're married at this point, but anyway, and the police arrest him. So, of course, their house is searched. And as he was getting his rights, according to police, TC said, I only wanted the van windows to be shot up. The fire at Fat Boys was only meant to be a frightener, but it went too far. Just a tad. So, yeah, I was a bit like, hmm, but okay. So they also managed to find evidence. So a sheet of paper was found in TC's house, which had both TC and Liz's like signed names on it. And it was basically a photocopied map of the house and scheme. And they had actually circled Doyle's house on it. And I was like, but yeah, that is pretty good evidence. Like, I get that. I do get that. But that could have been for anything. Like that could have been for another planned frightener. It could be because they had competition with them. It could be anything. Now, Joe Steele's also arrested, and he lives at his grands. So the police arrest him at his poor grands. And he actually was really quite good. He didn't argue or anything. He just went along and answered questions. Now, of course, he's saying he's innocent. He said he had nothing to do with it. However, when they mentioned the pub, like, he got a bit quieter and a bit less helpful because he obviously knows the police know enough shit. Do you know what I mean? It's not like they've got absolutely nothing to go on because I think, obviously, these guys are interviewed by police quite often, but I think, obviously, when they start chatting about exact things like that and exact witness statements, is he's probably like, all oh, right, OK, they're not just at it here. They do know what they're talking about. Um, so he became a lot less helpful. But he basically incriminated himself as he told four police officers that he knew who lit the match. So Gary Moore, who I've not really told you much about, and there's not much to tell you about, um, Thomas Gray and... TC's young cousins, like um, one of them, his young cousin, his only young cousin, sorry, Lafferty Jr., were also in custody, and also Tam McGraw was also arrested. Now they were all freed pretty quickly, like served two weeks in jail, served bail, and then were taken like off the charge list, apart from TC and his cousin. So the rest of them are like two weeks in jail, bailed, and then that's it, done. So they go to the sheriff court in Glasgow and evidence proved that they had, like, torched the house. So, like, well, the evidence is witness statements, really. There isn't actually really any physical evidence. So they have, like, statements from, you know, like, Lafferty, Jun- Lav- Lafferty sorry, Jr. has his statement basically saying where he was, etc. So he's actually let off and replaced with Joe Steele. So this is where... Joe Steele comes in. So is Thomas Gray and Gary Moore. Sorry, this is a lot of names. So the only names now are Joe Steele, Thomas Gray, Gary Moore and TC. So, of course, they have the self-incriminating statements from two of them. They've got witness statements. Um, And to start with, seven men were going to appear in the High Court, charged with various ice cream war incidents. Um, But only Campbell and Steele actually start facing conviction. Now, I also just want to pipe in, this is when, obviously, CID are kind of working on this case, but I would just like to tell you that their nickname in the Glasgow schemes at this time was the Serious Chimes Squad. <laughs> what really, which really did give me a lot. Serious Chimes Squad. Because <laughs> obviously the ice cream fan wow. Chimes. 
and these guys are hard as nails and, they're and it really it really got me yeah like I was real laughing about that <laughs> sorry back to the story wow. very serious so obviously key statements were in Joseph Granger's statement and on the stand he gets up so obviously the police are like here we go our key statement and he says that the police made up the whole thing and forced him to sign it said he heard absolutely no conversation in a pub and basically the police invented this statement and he was so scared because they said they would link him to the crime unless he said this so he actually ended up getting five years for perjury now the prosecution focused on William Love now because they're like well that's actually falling apart so like he said he was absolutely sure he heard them talking in a pub on either Friday the 23rd or Saturday the 24th of March 1984. Um, said that when he was in the pub, he saw them and TC actually thanked him for driving the getaway car. Remember when he shot the ice cream van window? But TC is now saying it was actually Love who fired the gun. Anyway, police basically are like, right, okay, this is all getting a bit confusing now as people are saying different things, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, the police came to make, obviously, the, the statements. So the statements they took, them off stealing Campbell the officer's statements are identical which I was kind of like okay and but then a psychologist looked at this and said they found it so interesting how these police how like similar they were like you're talking spellings word for word like punctuation like it was basically practiced do you know what I mean like if I said a sentence to you and asked you to repeat it instantly you'd probably miss a couple of words or miss the way I said it but these statements are like so identical and the Lord Kincaid, who's presiding over this, was quite concerned about the lack of physical evidence, of course, as all of this is based on like verbals with no credibility, really. Um, so there is basically insufficient evidence, he believed, to charge the men. But he said to the jury, if you believe William Love's statement, then you have to find them guilty. If you don't believe it, you can't find them guilty, almost kind of thing. So two days of deliberation the jury took. And they came back with a guilty verdict to both men on all charges. So TC was sentenced to life with a minimum of 20 years. And Joe Steele was sentenced to life, but with no minimum years. Now, both men kept saying they were innocent and actually were known from this on as the Glasgow Two. So if you actually do some research into that, you'll find quite a lot of information about the Glasgow Two. And it was a huge campaign about their evidence. And they'd said no matter what happens they are never going to say they've done something they didn't do and they're never going to work alongside the police like never now Steele kept like being quite violent in prison he kept escaping he escaped from like Perth prison Sotton etc he actually managed to escape get himself to London and tied himself to Buckingham Palace which is quite an impressive statement to be fair but this was all like to prove his innocence now, TC actually moved to a special unit by making a deal with the police. I'm not sure of the ins and outs of the deal, but this completely disrupted, like, the friendship between Steele and TC. And it actually, like, lasted for, like, the rest of their lives, really. Now, TC began suspecting that Tam McGraw was discouraging people, like, to look into helping them. Now, he's meant to be a close friend, but obviously Tam McGraw's not in jail for any of this. He's not been charged for any of this. And I think he was kind of telling people just to, like, let it lie. Like, the people have been found guilty, obviously, for the Doyle family, let them get on with it, etc. But, of course, these men are saying they haven't done anything wrong. 
1989, TC was in his cell and was actually attacked unprovoked by prison guards. And they beat, like, his whole body, black and blue. You're talking, really beat him up, really injured him. And he actually went to court with this and won a 4K settlement for his injury. So £4,000 he won for the injuries that the guards gave him. I'd like to think the guards, like, didn't keep their job, maybe. But I'm not 100% sure on that. Um, now, Glasgow City Councillor Tommy Sheridan believed the boys were innocent. So he began helping organise, like... Of course he did. Of course he's there. So he begins organising marches and protests for innocence, basically saying the police were wrong, etc. And a close friend, um, Linton, also helped with this. So there's a huge campaign by the 1990s um, for Free the Glasgow too. So it was a huge, big thing. And people on the street start kind of believing that the real killer was maybe Tam McGraw. Now the public start becoming unconvinced of this conviction. Like, obviously, the whole Free the Glasgow 2 thing is huge. And you do hear about people that come forward and say, like, oh, we believe it was someone else, etc. But this is such a huge campaign, and especially for a local councillor to be involved. Now, multiple people start saying, like, if, like, the statements they give, and, like, even just witness statements, basically they began saying if they didn't sign the statements, the police were going to start tying them to the case, similar to what the other guys said. The petrol station lady, so remember the woman that didn't want to thingy, she came forward as a witness and the police were like, great, that's great. But when she didn't ID TC and Steele, they actually never contacted her again and refused to use her. So she ID'd other, well, didn't ID anybody, I don't think, but she said that it wasn't uh, TC and Steele that bought the petrol in the canister that night and they just never used her again and never, like, basically got involved. Also, the same as, remember, the car that was nothing to do with it. People saw the three men that ran out the four men that ran out of that but the police weren't interested because they said it wasn't linked but it kind of makes you think were they not interested because it didn't sound like tc and steel but that's my opinion um so obviously william love as well corroborated the other statement and basically someone came forward in jail saying that he was like a cellmate i think saying that love was offered to get out by the police if he was to say that he heard this. So Love didn't go to the police, police came to him kind of vibe. And the dates he said he heard it, he was actually in jail pending conviction of an armed robbery. So there is no way Love could have heard this. So thankfully, they actually review everything and they decide that Granger and Love's um, like statements and events were unreliable. So obviously in 1996, the Scots laws brought in that the review of convictions are allowed so both Steele and TC are allowed out of jail on bail pending review of their case. So as you can imagine, like they've got their freedom back. They've been in jail for however long at this time and they've managed to get their freedom back. And, you know, this is a massive thing for the Glasgow 2 campaign. Obviously, this is heartbreaking for the Doyle family, though, because if they are innocent, who killed their family kind of thing? So it must be a real big amount of mixed emotions. However, 14 months later, they are sent back to jail by three appeal judges who find them guilty all over again and send them back to jail, which, again, a year la- just over a year later, that's bringing up so many more emotions for everyone involved as well, which must be really, really difficult. Now, once he's sent back to jail, TC actually goes on hunger strike and would only really drink black tea to start with and eventually stop that. Um, and he was actually on hunger strike... I can't actually remember how long it was, but I'm sure it was like 50 odd days, which absolutely like 
blows my mind when people can do hunger strike because that is like absolutely obviously not why bother like you're in jail you're not they're not gonna let you out just yeah, eat all I, you can i don't think it's to be let out samantha i think it's to like prove a point like to prove you're there's other kind of ways thing. to prove a point food does not need to be it <laughs> right anyway so he actually ends his hunger strike and agreed to eat a combination of noodles curry powder and dietary supplements which had actually been dropped off for him by his girlfriend Karen Packer and his sister Agnes Laverty. Now obviously this is because he began refusing all prison food so he would only accept meals brought from the outside and obviously this is like not meant to happen but this went through as exceptional circumstances by government um, governor sorry Bill McKinley and basically said that they were allowed to bring in a weekly supply of those three ingredients as that was basically keeping them alive. But I mean, If you brought like... that for me, if I was on hunger strike, I'd be dating. But I think by this point, but I think by this point, imagine his trust in the police in the prison. He probably has none. He's probably not trusting the food they're giving him. Do you know what I mean? But it's not. No, like I get what... that. But I mean, if you bring me curry powder and some noodles and some crap. Aye, but Samantha, they're not going to be like, oh, you can bring something for outside. I enable I'm just going to bring it on McDonald's every week. You can't be doing that. I know. But so like... anyway, anyway, enough of your wild opinions today. Right. In 2002, the same happens again, and they are both allowed out to pending review. Now, obviously, they're now given their freedom back, which is absolutely horrendous, you know, like, especially only, like, what, four years on, really? Kind of four or five years on. So, obviously, everything's looked at, evidence from a psychologist, everything, and they look at the, you know, the quote the that the four officers mentioned the quote remember the quote that he says like it was just meant that tommy said was just meant to be a frightener all of these were identical which they said it looked forced and they'd done tests etc but also he has completely like denied ever saying this and like family and friends of tc have been like that is not the kind of thing he would say like he did some shady shit and he's not just going to admit it straight up like that now this is what i've mentioned earlier like I think Police Scotland are fantastic. I think what they can do is brilliant. They're great at what they do. But, like, is this just because it would have been easier for it to be these men that that's why they said it was? I don't know. It just all seems a bit wild. Now, the appeal court judges actually said the jury would have viewed all this differently if they had kind of known that about the police statements. And after 20 years in 2004, TC and Steele are actually cleared of all charges then all charges linking them to the Doyle family murder. Now, of course, the Doyle family, this isn't a time for celebration for them or for TC and Steele. Like, the Doyle family are back to square one and, like, are they really trusting police now? Like, they've put these guys away and then it's come out that all these things are wrong and all these statements aren't true. They must be in such a horrendous position. Now, the Glasgow two, their relationship completely fell apart and they didn't have anything to do with each other. And Steele actually said that TC had basically ruined his life so as I'd said, it's not like they've came out and they're all really, like, happy about things, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's such a horrendous time because they've spent so much of their childhood in and out of kind of young adult services to then be in prison for 20 years, potentially under a wrongful conviction. Like, if they are innocent, that's so many, like, that's other people's lives taken away, basically. Now... Tam McGraw is now basically who's under the most suspicion. Um, and it's all just a bit like, hmm. He said that, like, people have said, 
Tommy, sorry, said that he had info that Tam McGraw was spotted buying petrol that day from like a source. And a week before the fire, Tam McGraw's brother had gotten a new van and saw Andrew Doyle in his van. Now, he basically then like started flashing the headlights and like driving towards Andrew Doyle. But Andrew Doyle just kept going. And because the road was so narrow, he had to squeeze past and like slam on his brakes. And Tam McGraw's brother made like believe that made him look stupid. But is that enough to torture his whole family? I personally don't think so, but I don't know what was going on at this time. Now, in April 2002, Tam McGraw was actually attacked during the day and only survived this due to the fact he wore a bulletproof vest when he was out and about, which I think just kind of sums up everything that's going on here. If you think you need to wear a bulletproof vest when you leave your house. I don't know if he was shot. I don't actually know what happened, but that's what kept him alive. Two days later, Campbell, like TC's actually attacked with knives and golf clubs, etc. And someone said they saw McGraw and someone else do this. So why did they do this? Is it because obviously Tam McGraw is now under suspicion? So was it to silence him? Or was it because Tam McGraw was maybe attacked by TC? Or was it because he was maybe attacked because people think he murdered the Doyles? Anyway, TC believes that two drug addicts were recruited by McGraw to do the fire. But of course, there's no evidence of this. There's nothing else really goes on. Now, there's another suspect as well called Gary Moore, who was freed. Remember, he was freed earlier due to the lack of evidence. Um, and he then became a gangland enforcer. Now, he served eight years for murder. He also killed a sex worker. He's done loads of attacks. And before he died in 2010, on his deathbed, he said, it was me that did that to them, all six of them. Do I regret it? Not one bit. But people have been like, like close to him, were like, mm, he definitely didn't say that. So I don't know where that came from, but that's apparently a quote. Now, just to go back there to what happened to both of the guys. So, Joe Steele was 42 when he was released from prison. And he was a drug addict while in prison, but it's completely turned his life around now. Apparently, he doesn't have anything to do with, like, prison or anything like that. I don't think prison with, like, drugs or anything. I don't think he is involved with that at all. Um, which is obviously quite a good thing and it shows that you can turn your life around do you know it is quite a nice thing to kind of see that tc struggled once released like obviously the hunger strike completely changed his health um but i think you know he kind of got on with things however in june 2019 he was found dead in his home age 66 by his ex-wife karen who I believe must be the Karen that took him in the food in jail. Remember, I mentioned there was a Karen, but it's obviously Karen Campbell now, but it must have been a different second name. Now, both TC and Steele reconciled before Campbell's death through a mutual friend and were kind of like friends, acquaintances again. Just to kind of sum up, because obviously that's the end of TC and Steele, and that's kind of coming to the end of the story, but I just kind of want to talk quickly about the actual fact that a full family was killed. Like, six people were killed, and for, like, what? Lillian said for years, she had nightmares of the screams for years and years later, and I just think that's what this story's like about. I know we got quite lost in a lot of the names and the crimes, etc., but I just don't understand how anything justifies killing off a full family, and I don't know what's worse. Like, if that was them that done it, and they went to jail, and they served their time, but then they're out, that's horrendous but then if it wasn't them what a waste of these guys lives as well but also who did do it then because to this day nobody 
has been found guilty of the Doyle murder. They were at one point, but that's been cleared. So the whole family, no one has ever been found guilty for that murder. So there's just, and do you know it's the 80s, time's going on. Are they just never going to know who completely wiped a family out? Like, I just think it's absolutely horrendous. But that's all from me, really. Sam, any thoughts? No, you pretty much summed it up. That was wild. That was, um, yeah, crazy. And like you said, if it was them that did it, then now they're free. And if it wasn't, that was a waste of their lives as well as the six people that died. So, yeah, it was absolutely awful. Yeah, I've said it before. Like, I am just a podcaster. I'm not a detective. I don't work for the police. I can literally just give my opinion, but my opinion is I don't think they did it. Mm-hmm. I don't it was like a lot. Yeah, I would say. No, 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 no. They were very adamant all the way up to the end, and with the hunger strike and all that jazz, you know, like, and if they kept getting let off as well, if if the police and things were adamant that it was them, they wouldn't be let out as much as they were, you know, back and forth. No, exactly. So you know, if, you thought, if you thought they were capable of what they did, you wouldn't be letting them out on bail. But I just think from the very start, they kind of wanted it to be them. And there isn't any evidence that it was anybody. Like, I think the main thing is, who were those men that bought the petrol, the petrol canister? And why did the manager lay them service when the woman didn't? And, like, why was... Prince not taken from that car. Were you able to? I don't know if you were able to do that in the 80s. But why was the people in, like, a car drives away from the scene of the crime, stinks of petrol, and has an empty canister in it? And you don't think that's related? Like, I cannot get my head around that. Mm -hmm. I'm totally with you there. It's like your last episode of Lawrence Haggart. Once the police get in their head, oh, it's them because they're notorious. Mm -hmm. We know them. We want to catch them for everything that they do. Let's pin this on them. And hope it was them. Yeah. In a way. But that's just my opinion, like you said. No, no, no. And I completely understand. Like, the pressure from public must have been absolutely horrendous. Because I think, you know, reading into it, yeah, there was crimes of shooting. There was fighting. There was horrendous stuff. But I think this even shook, like, the hardest of criminals. And they were like, nah, too far. Like, a whole family's being killed. So there's this amount, like, a massive amount of pressure on the police to find someone guilty for this. So I don't know if they've just found that easiest to be like, these two guilty enough but it just I just don't get the whole bits with statements people saying like the police literally forced a statement upon me and the fact that the four policemen have that quote from TC but he has never since do you know he would have been out of jail if he admitted he did it he never did but the, all four policemen have an exact word for word quote of TC saying he did it but it was meant to be a frightener I just don't I just struggle to believe it and I, I could be wrong but I just really really struggle to believe that um but yes, please have a look about the ice cream wars. Like, definitely give it a Google if you've not, if you don't know much about it. You can find so many stories. I think it, obviously anything that happens to people is horrendous. But I think the Doyle family, the reason I wanted to cover this one is because I think it's the most horrendous one out of them all. But there are so many other stories and so many other people involved. And if people can't be bothered reading and you want me to read it and then speak it to you, just ask and I can do like something. I can do a mini episode on it, but. I just think you need to remember after all this kind of crime and stuff I've spoke about that six lives were lost for absolutely no reason and probably one of the most horrific ways possible. Yeah.